Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. How prepared are you to support someone who is living with post-exertion symptom exacerbation or what is sometimes called post-exertion malaise? Yes, today we're talking about the cardinal sign of post-viral illnesses, including long COVID and myalgic encephalomyelitis. Dr. Todd Davenport joins me to start a conversation about reimagining the way most of us have thought about fatigue, physical activity, and exercise. Dr. Davenport is a professor at the University of the Pacific in California, where he teaches and helps to lead the Doctor of Physical Therapy program. Todd also does musculoskeletal research, and you might have heard him talking on episode 44 of the JOSPT Insights podcast about the 2021 ankle sprain clinical practice guideline. But today we're diving into another area of his expertise, post-viral illness and its debilitating sequelae. Today's episode is part one of a two-part conversation where we start with what post-exertion symptom exacerbation is and why you should care about it. Dr. Todd Davenport, thank you for joining me today on JOSPT Insights. Uh, Claire, thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be back. It is a pleasure to have you back. It's always nice to have people returning because it's endorsement that something's going well (laughs) if you're returning. So thank you. Todd, today we're talking about this complex phenomena, post-exertion symptom exacerbation. And I think as we get further into the COVID pandemic, we're getting more reports and I reckon importantly, a better understanding of what the longer term sequelae are of acute SARS-CoV-2 infection. And I have no doubt that our listeners are hearing and reading more about long COVID and perhaps even having people come into the clinic to see them who are struggling with some symptoms. Certainly our thoughts are with the many people around the world who are struggling today with long COVID. I'd like to talk, as I mentioned, about that cardinal sign of long COVID, this post-exertion symptom exacerbation. And I also, right at the start, want to acknowledge that post-exertion symptom exacerbation is also a cardinal sign of viral illness, post-viral illness broadly. And Importantly, acknowledge the myalgic encephalomyelitis or ME community who have been trying to raise awareness about post-exertion symptom exacerbation for years. What we're talking about today is certainly not a new phenomenon to some in our community, but perhaps it is to many of our listeners. So what is post-exertion symptom exacerbation and why should musculoskeletal rehabilitation clinicians care about it? Long COVID is really a condition that didn't exist three years ago. The recent blog posts that we published on the JOSPT blog really point to the fact that we can apply lessons learned from myalgic encephalomyelitis to the current long COVID uh, situation uh, in which we find ourselves. Post-exertional symptom exacerbation uh, is sometimes called post-exertional malaise. So those those are synonymous, and we deal with them almost synonymously in the blog post, acknowledging that there are certain patient groups that prefer post-exertional symptom exacerbation and some patient groups that prefer post-exertional malaise. Why post-exertional malaise? Well, it's because you feel sick after exerting. There is a, a return of viral-type symptoms, uh, fevers, sore throats, headaches, which we don't expect from physical exertion. 
Broadly speaking, post-exertional symptom exacerbation or post-exertional malaise is a set of unusual signs and symptoms in response to physical exertion. That physical exertion can be as simple as sitting at the computer, carrying on a conversation, going to the store for a gallon of milk, or could be the cardiopulmonary exercise test. These unusual signs and symptoms are chiefly fatigue, but we use fatigue as a placeholder for a symptom that is so severe we can't describe it. When I tell people that I help research post-viral fatigue, fatigue of sort of unexplained origin, folks are like, oh, God, thank you. I get tired too. I just, I need a nap sometimes and I drink too much coffee. <laughs> You're like, no, that's not this. This is totally different. This is for you marathon runners out there. Imagine after you ran a marathon, but from working at the computer, you are bonked. There is nothing left. The tank is empty. And so that's the fatigue of post-exertional symptom exacerbation or post-exertional malaise. So in addition to the dysfunction and difficulty of the what we're calling fatigue, but is fatigue plus plus, are a whole host of other signs and symptoms that are unusual, like cognitive dysfunction. Sometimes it's called brain fog, involving impairments in short-term memory, impairments in attention. I saw a tweet from a patient with long COVID who said that uh, the brain fog is not misplacing your keys. It's going through the process of making tea, and instead of pouring the tea into a teacup, you pour it into the sink because you forgot what you were doing. It's that kind of cognitive dysfunction, but also other symptoms and signs, uh, shortness of breath, runny nose, fevers, cough. There's these pulmonary manifestations in addition to dizziness, blood pressure changes, inappropriate tachycardia to the point that some people with post-exertional symptom exacerbation also meet clinical criteria for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And it's this heart rate intolerance that can be deeply troublesome. Also numbness and tingling inappropriately after exertion. So you can see that post-exertional symptom exacerbation isn't just sort of tired, rest, okay again. It's a completely different animal. I'm really glad that you mentioned that it's more than simply brain fog or the crushing fatigue. I've seen some people describe it as, because I think they're the common descriptions that people might read about or see on social media or hear about in other media interviews, but it's much broader illness for so many people living with this and also for the people who are caring for them. Absolutely. Kind of brings to mind a tangent, which is my personal crusade against stock photos of tired women holding their foreheads. <laughs> this is not eye strain. This is not feeling a little tired after a work day. The appropriate image might be someone with blackout lenses and, and head noise canceling headphones in the dark laying supine in order to, to try and recover. That indicates, I think, the severity of what we're talking about. Todd, what do we know about what causes post-exertion symptom exacerbation? There's the question, right? The etiological question is far from settled. We know from much of the literature in systems and cellular physiology that there is a disruption of the substrates involved with oxidative metabolism. So everyone who is getting a little anxious because I'm going to talk about the Krebs cycle and relax because I'm not going to do that, but that's basically the cycle that appears to be disrupted 
based on the metabolomic data that we have from myalgic encephalomyelitis uh, in that sort of area of research. At the systems level, we know that there is a fluctuating capacity to use oxygen for metabolism, which makes sense because at the cellular level, if you're not able to use oxygen, then it should show up at the systems level as well. And our methodology with the, uh, the WorkWell Foundation, with whom I'm an unpaid scientific advisor, has shown that there is impairment in the volume of oxygen consumed, particularly at what we call the ventilatory anaerobic threshold, which is the point at which anaerobic metabolism tends to start to predominate. So people go into early anaerobic metabolism. They run out of the ability to use oxygen. A useful analogy is often the credit card analogy. So a highly trained athlete might be able to climb the stairs with very low interest rate on their credit card, right? Their energy credit card. They get to the top of the stairs and they just keep walking. And they pay as they go because they can just sort of walk a little slower. They catch up their oxygen debt and they're fine. People like me who probably could go to the gym a lot more often might have a higher interest rate. I'll get to the top of those stairs and maybe stop for a second <laughs> and then keep going. But, you know, again, not penalizing my daily activities. Someone with post-exertional symptom exacerbation or post-exertional malaise would get to the top of the stairs and need to rest for hours to days. Totally different high interest rate on the credit card. Generally speaking, we see a variance in when these post-exertional symptoms tend to come on after an activity, anywhere from 24 hours to a couple of days later. But the rule is that it varies and they tend to last three days to a week. If you can imagine going to the store for a simple errand will cause you not to be able to do much for three days to a week, which is why things are so horribly impairing for people with post-exertional symptom exacerbation. But again, the rule is that it tends to vary. So again, asking about onset latency and duration of post-exertional symptoms should be part of our subjective exam. We've talked about the fatigue and the rest. Is it as simple as exertion makes it worse rest makes it better? Or is it more complex than that? So there's been some work done on triggers for post-exertional symptom exacerbation. And we know that physical and cognitive exertion are more likely to trigger abnormal post-exertional signs and symptoms than, say, emotional triggers. Likewise, when we test folks using the short form 36, where the Primary impairment tends to come is in physical functioning, not in the mental and emotional functioning. We know that this is not just anxiety. We know it's not just depression. We know that we're not just trying to hack the affective component like we might in a pain science approach. Uh, this is different. There is a functional reserve, a metabolic reserve for cognitive and physical activity that seems to be much more at play here in terms of the types of triggers that kind of come forward as being meaningful. And Todd, you alluded to some testing that you've done in the clinic. So I'm interested to hear a bit more about the measuring and monitoring aspect of post-exertional symptom exacerbation or post-exertional malaise. I'd like you to talk a little bit about the testing that you do around diagnosis or getting a, a clinical picture. And then let's talk a bit about the monitoring tools that you use and the sorts of monitoring that folks might do at home if they're people living with post-exertion symptom exacerbation or if they're caring for someone who is. 
measurement is, is just so important. Ultimately, if you can't measure a phenomenon, it doesn't exist. This really kind of gets back to why it is, I think, people with fatigue-related conditions tend to be marginalized, is that it, it looks subjective. And some of these symptoms, Claire, are wild. You're telling me that going to get a gallon of milk causes you to need to lie down for a week. That's a condition that breaks all the rules. If you think about it, that just shouldn't happen. And so ultimately measurement becomes really important, not only from the perspective of you know, clinical monitoring and diagnosis, but just basic validation of the patient because the patient too, they know that this is unusual. I'll also point out that fatigue sort of in our broader society is considered a character flaw, not a symptom. And I think that that works against people who have post-exertional symptom exacerbation and really just want to keep working. I don't think anybody wants to be lazy. Maybe I'm too low, too rosy about this, but people generally know that's not a desirable character trait. Or fatigue is, is like the old neurasthenia. It was categorized as a mental illness. And there are, I think, some meaningful intersections between the way we think about gender and symptoms that are at play here, because we know that post-exertional symptom exacerbation and post-exertional malaise tends to be more frequently diagnosed in women. From a research perspective, we have used cardiopulmonary exercise testing for the past 20 years, and we use a paradigm involving two cardiopulmonary exercise tests based 24 hours apart, where we're measuring rebreathed gases, we're doing EKG work, we've started doing EEG pre and post so that we have an entire sort of test battery in addition to symptom questionnaires. That is you know, sort of the research methodology uh, around which much of our data has been extracted. Just before we get to the clinical perspective, can I take a little sidebar? Because we've just been talking about how complex these symptoms are and, and the fatigue and how there might be a delayed onset of fatigue and then it wipes someone out for three days to a week. What guardrails do you put in place when you're doing this kind of testing that you don't really exacerbate someone's symptoms to the point where they're wiped out for a week? Well, I think it's worth acknowledging that when you push someone to the edge, that's going to happen. And it's really important to educate people that this will happen and to make sure that folks are bought in uh, and understand the risks and understand the benefits. Oftentimes, folks who receive this testing are receiving this testing because objective evidence of disability for a pending disability case, because we just don't believe people who have post-exertional symptom exacerbation, post-exertional malaise, like just believing people apparently is not admissible in court. And I'm not a lawyer, so I won't speculate further on that. But there are reasons that people do this that really have more to do with validation and really to do with diagnosis than, than anything else. Making sure people understand upfront, uh, adhering to rigorous quality control methodology so that you know when you have the opportunity to test someone, you're getting valid and reliable data. And so cardiopulmonary exercise testing is not for everyone. It's certainly not for everyone uh, because of, of the risks. I'm fully respectful of that. And the risk-benefit balance just doesn't make sense. In addition, I would say cardiopulmonary exercise testing is not available for a lot of people, especially to this level. This is not the cardiopulmonary exercise testing that you would receive in a lot of cardiology offices where they would exercise you to symptoms, check the EKG, and you're done. This is really research-grade exercise testing. 
Thanks for going into the detail because I think understanding what the testing involves and the processes around it can also be really helpful for clinicians who might be working with folks who are living with post-exertional symptom exacerbation, you know, helping them to make informed decisions about should I go and have this testing done? What are the risks? What are the benefits? Let's come back to where you were headed, which is for the clinical scenario and the clinical monitoring and the environment where most of us won't in the clinic have access to the sort of research lab setup that you've got at work. Really, for clinicians, it's as simple as being aware of the symptoms and signs, which is why we spent a lot of time in the blog posts talking about what they are, how to observe them, the clinometric properties of the symptoms to indicate that a person is having post-exertional symptom exacerbation. That's really the first step. You know, the second step really is asking the patient, what are your top three symptoms? And what are the top three activities that may be promoting those symptoms or causing those symptoms? When do you notice this? And really trying to help people identify cause and effect, and then using that as your comparable sign, so to speak, and establishing that comparable sign based on what the patient tells you, because it gives you an idea of meaningful activities to the patient that you can use to center a biofeedback program, a pacing program in addition to giving you a repeatable sign that you can use. So really subjective. We're working on a questionnaire on measuring function in people with post-exertional symptom exacerbation. So more more on that hopefully soon. (laughs) But measuring disability in population is really hard because as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, there just aren't words that describe how bad this is, how profound the functional disablement is. And so what you tend to see with short form 36 are that there are some pretty significant floor effects in those scales. So you can measure better, but you can't measure worse. And and that, so that's a problem. What we've done in sort of our practice is to spend more time putting credence into symptom reports and modifying the patient-specific functional scale around the symptom reports, which ultimately served as the basis for this questionnaire that we're currently working on. As for other function-based objective tests, I think we should keep those for other patients. So there are a couple of favorites in the clinic that I've noticed that just aren't valid for this population. The first is the six-minute walk test. The six-minute walk test gives you a very good understanding of how the patient's functioning on that given day. does not give you any sense of how they can do the next day or how they feel a week from then. And so it doesn't tend to be valid. Also, the repeated sit-to-stand types of tests that also measure sort of lower extremity performance over a period of time, uh, again, they miss the mark. They're just not valid. The gold standard, I would say, would be cardiopulmonary exercise testing. And again, we've talked about how that's uh, unavailable, unfeasible, sometimes the risk-benefit analysis does not work out for specific patients. But a lot of what we're doing here is aiming toward quality of life. And so we're going to shift towards believing patients. Thanks, dear listeners. That brings us to the end of part one of this dive into post-exertion symptom exacerbation. Please tune in next week to hear about pacing, the less is more approach to managing post-exertion symptom exacerbation that will challenge you to think differently about how you prescribe exercise and what the goals of therapy are for people who are living with post-exertion symptom exacerbation. We'll catch you then. listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, 
Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. 